Uh, last week, I promised that we would continue with uh, a look at the prophet Daniel. So let me start today with this. Uh, several years ago, a guy by the name of Ernest Kearns wrote what has become kind of the uh, definitive history of the AA movement, Alcoholics Anonymous. He named the book, uh, he titled the book, Not God, because he said that the fundamental problem alcoholics have is that way down deep they refuse to acknowledge their limitations, their weaknesses, the fact that they are finite fallen creatures. And they tend to live under the delusion that they are in control of everything when in fact the truth is they can't even control themselves. And so he writes, fundamental to the recovery process is that healing and sanity begin with a simple realization that I am not God. It's a very simple thought. I am not God. I'm not in control of the universe. I often can't even control myself. I violate my own values. I want to do what's right, but then I do something else. And I need help from a power that is greater than myself. Now, of course, the I am God illusion is not just limited to alcoholics. We all know what that's like, right? We go back to the very first book of the Bible, very first time we read about disobedience. The serpent says to the woman in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, when you eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Very first temptation. You'll be the master of your universe. You will not have to bend your knee. You will not have to submit to somebody else's wisdom. And you'll get away with just about anything when it comes to the moral laws of the universe. You will be like God. Now this is, friends, at the heart of all spiritual confusion. Now at recovery meetings, if any of you have been a part of that in the past, you'll know it, know it AA, they always start with a reminder of spiritual sanity. People have wondered many times why they start meetings this way, but if you've ever been to one, you'll know that the first thing they say when they talk about anything in a meeting is they'll say, hi, my name is Phil and I'm an alcoholic. In other words, just to clear up any confusion about who is God and who is not, I am Phil. I am not God. So here's what we're going to do right now at the start of this message. I'd like you to turn to somebody around you and just look them in the eye, say your name, whatever your name is, and just say, I am not God. Okay? All right. Now... Let's look at that person again, this time say your name, and say, and you're not God. <laughs> Some of you got way too much pleasure out of the second one <laughs> compared to the first one, right? It is amazing how we get confused over this one single principle. I ran across this quote from Anne Lamont. She says, the biggest difference between you and God is God doesn't think he's you. <laughs> failure to understand this, even though cognitively we get it, failure to act on it is really detrimental to life. So this morning, we're going to continue this study on the book of Daniel and his friends by looking at a man who's about to learn this lesson, this very painful lesson, the hard way. Last week, we learned that Daniel and his buddies 
became captives to Babylon under the rule of a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. They were in a place that they never intended to be, Daniel and his buddies. But yet somehow in the midst of that, they were thriving. We talked about what it means to be a thriver last week. But then we come to chapter 2 in the book of Daniels. And what I want to do is I want to pull out of chapter 2 three primary views of God and life from this amazing story. This story doesn't get talked about much from the life of Daniel or the book of Daniel. A lot of times you hear about Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And those are great stories. But this happens to be one of those stories that really has a lot of kick to it. We're going to talk about it. And here's how the story begins. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him so much that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that troubles me. Tell me what I dreamed, for I must know what it means. It's very interesting. Did you know that one of the major health concerns in America today is sleep disorders? According to the National Sleep Foundation, nearly two-thirds, 62% of Americans have trouble sleeping at, at least a few nights a week. If any of you can relate to that statistic, you will understand Nebuchadnezzar's problem. It is the second year of his reign. He's been a king now for a little over a year. Assyria, which had been kind of Babylon's chief uh, enemy, had completely collapsed five years earlier. So now Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely dictator of an empire that reigns with unchallenged authority over the known world. By far, he is the most secure, powerful person on the face of the earth. In fact, he is looked upon as a god. That's how people think of him. But interestingly enough, he is a god who cannot sleep. He is a god with insomnia. And he finds a year into having everything that he could ever possibly want, that everything is wrong. Something is troubling him. Here's the thing. When you live like King Nebuchadnezzar lived, friends, you're one bad dream, one bad night's sleep away from insecurity. Nebuchadnezzar comes to believe and he adopts what we're going to talk about this morning, the first three views of God in life. He kind of sums up the first one. And if I could say it, this is the way I would say it. Nebuchadnezzar's philosophy was, I am God and the world revolves around my life. He is in control. He is in charge. People exist to make him happy. The world revolves around him. Now, there are certain characteristics of people who kind of develop this I God, I am God syndrome. We're just going to walk through some of them quickly. The first one is self-preoccupation. That's pretty obvious in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And a lot of people live kind of under the same delusion today. And we have certain names, even uh, people who have very serious problems with this, serious forms of it, we call it a messianic complex, messiah complex. And these folks kind of see the world as kind of revolving around them. And what's interesting is it always leads to a second trait, and that is people have high anxiety. 
They always seem to be troubled about something in their life. Always something seems to be bothering them. They seem to be worried about a lot of stuff. And because of that, they have feelings like Nebuchadnezzar of inadequacy. They can't solve their own problems. They can't solve their own worries. And so they turn to a lot of different things to find peace. They're playing God. Notice what this leads to, and it's very obvious in the life of this king. Just like other people, he becomes very demanding. Do you know anybody like that? They want what they want, and they want what they want when they want it. Now, notice some other characteristics, but let me read first this in verse 4. We'll come back to it a little later. It says, Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. (laughs) Now, this is uh, funny to me. Two comments real quick. How well do you think his advisors, his astrologers, are doing at reminding him that he is not God? Live forever, king. May you never die. This is pretty typical of people who play God in this world. Most of the time, they only want people around them who will reinforce their false beliefs and will tell them what they want to hear. Second, and this is kind of a side note, but don't you think it's interesting that guys who are supposed to be sorcerers and magicians and astrologers they have to ask the king what his dream was. Nebuchadnezzar catches on to this. Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, but the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be demolished into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. How many of you ever dreamed something and you remember you dreamed it, but you can't remember what it was? That's exactly what happens here to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's not falling for it. He's saying, I can't remember what I dreamed. You tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. Apparently, he can't remember. And it leads to another characteristic of the I am syndrome, the I am God syndrome, and that is low frustration tolerance. It's funny, people who study human behavior speak of this. They say that people who are mature in character exhibit high frustration tolerance. They're able to exercise patience and delay gratification Immaturity, on the other hand, they say is marked by low frustration tolerance. Now, in other words, I can't stand it if I don't get what I want right away. Now, I'm going to ask you to kind of judge Nebuchadnezzar a little bit here, okay? Just a little bit. Would you say he is high frustration tolerance or low frustration tolerance? Okay. Here's the clue. If anybody wants to tear you limb from limb and demolish your house... That is not a sign of high frustration tolerance. Literally, in those days, if you offended the king, it was very common for the king to actually execute you by dismembering you. Listen now. Tearing down your house that you lived in, digging a hole, and putting a portage on on top of it. That's what it means. It means a heap of rubble literally meant he turned your house into a latrine. 
Later on in verse 12, after the wise men can't help him, he actually carries through on this threat and he actually orders all the men, all the wise men of the nation to be executed. This leads to another sign of the I am God syndrome and it's paranoia. Look here at verse 8. The king replied, I can see you through your trick. You're trying to stall for time because you know I am serious about what I said. If you don't tell me the dreams, you will be condemned. You have conspired to tell me lies in hopes that something will change, but tell me the dream, and then I will know that you can tell me what it means. Now what happens here is he's become a conspiracy theorist. King Nebuchadnezzar is paranoid now. People are out to get him. You're in cahoots. You're telling me stuff to mislead me. You're out to get me. Now, can you imagine a politician being emotionally immature? <laughs> it's very interesting. Power has a way of confusing people about who's really at the center of the world. One of my favorite stories is about President Lyndon Baines Johnson. When he was president, LBJ had a cabinet meeting one time. And he asked Bill Moyer to pray. You guys will probably remember Bill Moyer was his press secretary. He was also an ordained Southern Baptist minister. And so LBJ asked him to pray one day in the cabinet meeting. And Bill Moyer was at the other end of the table and he was praying real quietly. So Johnson interrupted him in the middle of the prayer and said, Speak up, Moyer, I can't hear you. To which Bill Moyer replied, I wasn't talking to you, sir. Beautiful, isn't it? Patient acceptance of frustration in everyday life is crucial to our formation as a child of God. It is a reminder, listen, it is a reminder that we are not at the center of the world. So tomorrow, when you're frustrated, and I promise you, you will be frustrated at some point. When you are stuck in traffic, or the kids spill something for the 15th time, or a task takes longer than you had planned on it taking, listen, instead of getting all bent out of shape, instead of road rage or spill rage or task rage, instead of getting paranoid and thinking that the whole world is out to get you, just say to yourself, I'm not God. The world does not revolve around me. It does not exist for the purpose of sparing me frustration. See, Nebuchadnezzar believes that he's a god, that the world does revolve around him. And because of it, he has self-preoccupation and high anxiety and feelings of inadequacy and a demanding spirit, low frustration tolerance, and maybe even a little bit of paranoia. And if you see any of these things beginning to surface in your life, you need to back up and say, whoa, I'm not the center. Now, interesting enough, there is another worldview, another life view about God. And it's found, interestingly enough, in the attitude of the king's advisors and astrologers. Their worldview goes something like this. They would say, I am not God, but God is not a part of my world either. Look at the verse. Verse 10. The astrologers replied to the king, there isn't a man alive who can tell your majesty his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. This is an impossible thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that the king requires. 
No one except the gods can tell you that dream, and they do not live among people. This is a really, really key verse. Very poignant. No one can help you with your problem, king, except the gods, and unfortunately, the gods don't live among people. So many people in our day miss this. They live in their, their everyday lives without the power and the presence of God. And the question comes down to this, is God even active on this earth? Does God even know or care? Or am I in this alone by myself? See, here's the way that the advisors see it. They see it as King Nebuchadnezzar is here. He's on the throne. Here's me. I live on earth. And there is a God, a religious being somewhere out there. And whenever I try to contact this being, there is a, a great barrier between me and God. Therefore, I'm on my own. And when I have a problem, which we all do, when I have problems, the only place that I can go is here. It's very interesting. This may be the most prevailing philosophy in our culture today. It is very subtle. But look at it. It is everywhere. When we get in a problem, when we get into a trouble, when we get into a rock and a hard place, the answer today is always that the answer lies within. The answer lies within you. Find it there. And it sounds so appealing and so uh, American and so uh, um, manly or womanly. And it's really opposite of what the Bible teaches. Here's the king's advisors, the best, the brightest, the most educated of the day, the experts, the specialists. And when they were faced with a challenge, they looked within themselves and they knew they were bankrupt. They knew they could never solve this problem. And so correctly they said, hey, king, no one's ever asked anything like this before. And even if a king asked it, there's no human being who's ever delivered on it before. And they said, they were perfectly right. They said only God could do this. But they were dead wrong when they said, but God is not available. Now I want to tell you why this has such an ouch factor for many of us today. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I live exactly like these astrologers sometimes. If you ask me if I believe God is available, if I believe God is still involved in the human affairs of our life, I would tell you a resounding yes. But then a problem enters my life. And instead of going to God, I worry. Instead of talking to someone who can give me some wisdom, I carry this burden around. I have an agenda, and instead of surrendering it to people, what I want to do is I want to do it my way. And what's crazy about this one is that the result of this way of life, that there is a God, but he's not a part of my world, is that I end up living exactly like King Nebuchadnezzar. And all I see in my life is anxiety and worry and trouble, fretting, because I have to solve it. I have to solve it. What I want you to see here, friends, is that it is entirely possible to understand that there is a God 
and that you're not him. But you can still live your life as if you are. And when you go through life alone and without God, when you decide to carry the burdens and the loads of this world, when you try to solve every problem by yourself, in the end, it ends up just you. So I say to you today, whether you are a Christian or a seeker or an agnostic or an atheist in this room, I want you to know there is a God. And we are not him. But he is active on this earth. And he is available. And he wants to be a part of your life. And that leads us to Daniel. And this last view of God and this world. As the king decrees, since the astrologers can't answer the dream, the king decrees that the wise men of Babylon should be executed. Now notice the response of Daniel. Once again, Daniel is in a place like a lot of us. Something happens and he has no control over it. (laughs) He's minding his own business, doing his own thing, and the next thing you know, he has a death sentence. They're facing his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing impending death. Yet responding here, responding is what Daniel does best. Watch what he does. Simply put, he has a worldview that says, listen, I am not God, but God is the center of my world. In other words, this world doesn't revolve around me. My life revolves around God and his purposes for my life. Now watch this. Read it in Daniel chapter 2. Watch what his response is. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discernment. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time so he could tell the king what the dream meant. (laughs) Then Daniel went home to his friends, Hananiah, Meshiel, and Azariah. That's Meshach, Abednego, Shadrach. That's their three uh, Hebrew names. He told them what happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Now look at the difference between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. There's certain qualities that flow out of his life because he's put God at the center of his universe. Notice the first thing he has is he has this great wisdom even in the face of death. When Daniel finds out he has a death sentence, he doesn't start wringing his hands. He doesn't start crying in the corner. He doesn't fly off the handle in anger. What a great lesson here. Daniel remains cool, calm, and collected. And he asks the really great question. Why in the world would the king issue such a harsh decree? That's the question he asks. And then he doesn't just say, well, okay, I got to die. I put my head on the chopping block, no problem. Daniel takes action. He says, let me go see the king. Let me see the king. Let me talk to him. Then he does something pretty amazing. He displays prayer-based faith. Watch this. Daniel knows nothing about the dream at this point. Does he know the interpretation? No. But he takes an incredible step of faith. 
He's going to the king so he can get more time. And here's the difference between the king's astrologers and Daniel. The king's astrologers looked within themselves to find the answer and came up short. Daniel says, man, I wouldn't even think of trying to do that. Daniel goes back to his small group, his life group, and he says, hey, group, let's hold hands and pray. <laughs> We're not going to be able to interpret this by ourselves. So he invites the community to pray with him. And the key here is that Daniel is just displaying not some grandiose faith, he just went to God humbly with the problem, and he poured his heart out to God with his friends. Now look what happens. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven, saying, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he alone has all wisdom and power. He determines the course of world events. He removes kings and sets others on the throne. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he himself is surrounded by light. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we ask of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. <laughs> I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is such a great, great verse in the book of Daniel. Because it marks the life of a person who has God at the center of the world. They display here what is called expectant gratitude. Now here's the thing. At this point in the story, and this is so important, he's prayed about it, he's gone to God with it, he's received the interpretation of the dream, but listen, nothing externally has changed in his life. Is he still under a death sentence? Yes, has he even met with Nebuchadnezzar yet? No. He doesn't even know if Nebuchadnezzar is going to let him tell him what the dream means. He doesn't know if he tells him the dream that Nebuchadnezzar gets offended, gets upset, maybe executes him right on the spot. All kind of things can still happen. Nothing has changed except Daniel's real big God has spoken. And normally in stories, you would expect the characters to reserve the victory dance when they get the ball across the goal line and everybody says, touchdown. Normally, you would never find in the middle of a story a hymn of praise. Normally, the hymn of praise comes at the end of the story. But here, it comes right in the middle of the story in verse 20. And I want to tell you why. Because Daniel knows who's driving the bus. And for Daniel, that is enough. Daniel says, I know who is driving the car. I can trust God. And the writer does this with such great skill in this book. We have no clue yet. If you're reading this like a novel, you have no idea what's going to happen when the king finds out what the dream really means. And what we're asked to do is to praise God with Daniel in the middle of the story. Now, I'm going to tell you why I think the writer does this. Because this is where we live, friends. Anybody in this room got a problem? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you do. <laughs> Let me tell you about your problem. Your problem is you're in the middle of your story. We come here every week, week after week, year after year. We do life together. And every time you gather back here, friends, one of the things that we do, one of the things that we do, just one, is that we praise God in the middle of our stories. And we don't know how our stories are going to turn out. 
We don't know if some wonderful and exciting things are going to happen in our life. We don't know if some very painful, awful, hard things are going to happen. We do not know how the story is going to turn out. But we do know who's driving the bus. We do know that the world is still in his hands. And what we do on Sundays is we gather together in the middle of our stories and we pour our hearts to God in worship and adoration, the God who holds all seasons and all time in his hands, who sets up kings and rulers and then sees them brought down. And this is what I mean, friends, by expectant gratitude. People who put God at the center of their lives do not wait until the end of the story to praise God. They do it right now. Now, this is so remarkable in the life of Daniel. This is a little long verse, but I want to read this. It says, Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, who had been ordered to execute the men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, Listen, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Then Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, Listen, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell your majesty the meaning of the dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what the dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, and I love this reply, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can tell the king such things. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you the dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. The revealer of mysteries has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than any living person that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wanted you to understand what you were thinking about. <laughs> Man, this is such a strong story. Daniel seeks Arioch out. He has the interpretation. He initiates going to the guy who found him. But look at what it says. I want you to notice the contrast. Notice the contrast between Arioch and Daniel. Arioch hurriedly brings Daniel into the king's presence. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar, he says, Listen, king, I found a man among exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to you. Now, this is what is called in political world uh, in terms spin control. Okay? The truth is Daniel went to him. Arioch didn't seek him out. Arioch's getting ready to kill him. But because Arioch's going to Nebuchadnezzar and because he wants to look good, he's going to do a little spin control. So he says, I found the man. What he's saying here is, uh, it was difficult, king. It wasn't easy, but you have one can-do guy here. <laughs> I called through the whole ranks of the Jew Jewish exiles. I found what you need, king. Now contrast Arioch's reply with Daniel's. <laughs> King says, can you tell me the dream, Daniel? And Daniel says, listen, there are no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians. Nobody can tell you that stuff. But there is a God in heaven, and he reveals secrets. And he's going to tell you about your future, King. Daniel demonstrates here one of the key, key parts of a God-centered life, and that is humility. Daniel just says, man, I'm not that smart. But he goes to the king and listen to what else he says. This was the dream and now we will interpret it to the king. Why does he say we? This is so good. Almost certainly he wants them to know that it's not just him, but it's his group of friends 
Remember, they were praying together back at the life group meeting. And it went to Daniel, but he doesn't take any credit for it. He just says, we're going to interpret the dream for you. Wouldn't you love to have a heart like this? I mean, wouldn't you love that when something good happens for somebody else, you don't get bent out of shape and wish it had happened to you? If I get clear about who is God in this world, I do not get obsessed about image management or self-promotion. Wow, this is so powerful. And Daniel was very careful to give credit to God and to his friends. Now here's the last thing and we'll close with this. Finally, Daniel demonstrates what I want to call bold confidence. The climax of the story comes now because we know that Daniel is going to interpret the dream. For the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize the dream for you. The king sees a large statue. It's awesome. It's got a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver. It's got a belly and thighs of bronze. It's got feet of iron and clay. And it's this image, the statue of awesome power. And best of all, for Nebuchadnezzar, as Daniel says, that part of the statue describes the king himself. He really emphasizes the extent of his power by saying that Nebuchadnezzar is not just ruler over human beings, but actually he's king of the beast and the birds of the air. <laughs> that's, how, that's how powerful this guy was. We have never had a chief executive in our country that I know of who has been deemed the beast of the field ruler. We have never had a man who is president of the birds. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is ruler over every creature and bird and person. So right now the dream is going great. But then comes the turning point. Daniel says, after you, king, will come another ruler and then another ruler. Now the text does not say who they are. And I want to say this real quick. People have been trying to guess for years which ruler or which empire is represented by each part of the statue. But I want to tell you, that is not the point of this story. Because at the base of the foot, or the feet of the statue, at the base of the statue, are feet of clay. Iron mixed with clay. And Daniel makes it real clear here that all this power, all this splendor, all of it stands on merely human foundation. And it turns out in the end that the statue is utterly vulnerable. Not only that, but he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, one day a giant rock, not made by human hands, is going to strike the statue at its feet and it's going to smash it to pieces. Now it's at this point in the story when Nebuchadnezzar reaches for his bottle and his Prozac. Because he's about to put two and two together. Daniel is prophesying, friends, about what would be the hinge of human history. Now, he wouldn't live to see it. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't live to see it. Neither would centuries of people that would follow them. And they all would keep wondering, will it ever happen? Will it ever come? What Daniel prophesied, will it ever take place? And then one day, an obscure carpenter from an obscure town began his ministry. You see, Jesus was the rock, not cut by human hands, not prepared by human beings. And Daniel, in bold confidence, 
says, here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand spiritual reality. You need to understand that there is a God and he is not you. And you are not him. Daniel says in essence, here's who's really in charge around here. This is God's earth. And this is my place in it. And I'm just one of a lots of people. But in this universe, there is a great big God, an infinite God, watching over this planet. And he does not have insomnia. He does not have restless nights. He is not fidgeting in his bed. But not only that, he is active on this earth, Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes on, and this is a very important part of the story. He goes on and says, listen, this God is not just Israel's God. Because back in that day, you have to understand, people thought, you know, every country had their little gods. Every tribe had their little gods. Babylon has its little gods. He says, this is not just one God among many, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the God of the whole earth, the God of heaven. And he's the Lord of Babylon as well as the Lord of Israel. And he is Lord over Nebuchadnezzar as well as Daniel. He is Lord over Jerusalem, and he's Lord over Rome, and he's Lord over New York, and he's Lord over Washington. Listen, he is Lord over Lakeland. And he's Lord over whoever you are, whoever you're with, and wherever you are in your life today. And here is the drama of this moment. The most powerful man in the world who could strike Daniel down with just one word. Here's Daniel say, King, you're going to die, and your kingdom is going to be swept away without a trace. So you need to come to know this real God. And listen to the response, and then we'll pray. Then King Nebuchadnezzar bowed to the ground before Daniel and worshipped him. He commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal the secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. (laughs) This corrupt, violent king opens his heart to God. Now listen, Is he truly converted at this point? No. If you follow the story, you're going to find out he'll still have trouble with pagan idolatry. He'll still have trouble with violence. But Daniel refuses to give up on King Nebuchadnezzar because God is up to something in Babylon. God loves him just like he loves you. I want to say to you today that there are three views in this world. I am God, and the world revolves around me. I am not God, but God is not a part of my world. Or I am not God, but God is the center of my world. Let's pray. Lord, would you teach us today uh, from the story of your servant Daniel and 
from the man who you love so much, King Nebuchadnezzar, enough to tell him the truth, enough to reveal yourself as a God who is active among us. Today, may we realize how great your love is for us, how great your love is for us. May we see ourselves in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, see ourselves sitting on our throne, living out our days, getting our own way and doing our own thing, and then suddenly you come to us and you tell us there is more than just being the center of this universe. Help us today to search our hearts, to bend our knee, to raise our hands in praise, and to worship you in the middle of our story like Daniel did. For you are a God of love, and you are the God of all gods. We pray that in your name.